0: Good morning. My name is David White. I'm the associate pastor at Springton Lake. We are on the last week of our series on the seven I ams of Jesus from the Gospel of John. So this week we are looking at I am the true vine. That's John 15, 1 through 11. You can find that on page 901 in your Pew Bible. Uh, uh, Pastor Rick will be back next week and he's going to do a series on the Apostles' Creed for the month of August. So before uh, my family and I were called here to serve at Springton Lake, we lived in Dresher, Montgomery County, north of the city. And we had this beautiful lace leaf Japanese maple in the backyard, huge tree. And I came home from work one day and immediately knew something was wrong because there was a pile of brush that I could tell was from the lace leaf maple next to my trash can. I should say this illustration is used with permission from my wife. I got out of my car and Jen says she remembered me walking to the backyard with my computer bag. What is going on? To find her dashing about the tree with a pair of loppers hacking away what looked to me indiscriminately at this Japanese maple. Her aunt, who is an excellent gardener, had come and that day for a visit and said, you know, that tree really needs a haircut. And she was right. But Jen, by her own admission, really doesn't know about pruning trees. <laughs> so it's just maybe I should cut off this. Wait a minute, come over here and let me cut this. And kind of working her way around the tree. Uh, it did eventually I think by the time we sold the house it had come back and looked look nice. <laughs> we're going to look at a passage that talks about pruning today. But it talks about our heavenly Father as the one who prunes. Who knows exactly what to cut and what to leave. If you are here with us investigating the Christian faith, we're really glad that you've come out this morning to join us and on one level, this passage points to the deepest longing of the human heart. The Beatles released All You Need Is Love way back in July of 1967. It's going to be 60 years old. I know some of you, that makes you feel really old. <laughs> and there's a reason why the song resonated. Because we are longing for love. And yet our experience of love in this world is very elusive. Our passage this morning points to the real source of love, the ultimate source of love that satisfies our souls. Uh, I want to warn you too uh, at the outset that this passage also talks about things we don't like to hear about. It talks about the reality of judgment. But please join me now in reading John 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to look at three points this morning. I've got a simple outline in your bulletin there. We're going to look first at the players, then we're going to consider abiding to bear fruit, and then finally, the promise of much fruit and full joy. So to begin with, we see four players mentioned in this. We've got the true vine, the vine dresser, and then two kinds of branches. So Jesus is describing himself as the true vine. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, he is speaking into a larger context. There's a number of places in the Old Testament where Israel, the people of Israel, are described as a vine. That was, that was taken up out of Egypt and then planted in the promised land. But in most of those contexts, it's speaking to the failures of the people. Look, for example, at this passage from Isaiah 5 that says, "'Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines.' He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So God is saying he took his people out of Egypt. He delivered them in the Exodus, right? He planted them in the promised land with the expectation that they were going to bear fruit that would be a blessing to all the nations, but these passages repeatedly point to ways that Israel failed to bear fruit. So it's into that context that Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I'm the one that all these passages were pointing to who would bear good fruit. So in this, he's He's declaring himself as as the God-man. We've looked at a number of these I am passages like where Jesus said he was the good shepherd that clearly linked to his divinity, tying it back again to to the Old Testament. In this passage, he's identifying with the people but saying, I'm the one who came to fulfill these things, that he's the one who would perfectly obey and bear fruit to to the Father's glory. And he's reorienting, he's saying that what it means to be the people of God is not to be a physical descendant of Abraham. It's to be connected to Jesus. The people of God is now found in those who are connected to Jesus. So a true child of Abraham, and you see this in other places in the New Testament, is not physical generation from Abraham. The people of God are those who live in life and dependence on Him. So Jesus is the true vine, and He describes the Father as the vine dresser who is expertly tending the vine. Now, obviously, with agriculture, there are elements to farming that are outside of a farmer's control, things like the weather, but success in farming is largely based on the experience and skill of the farmer. And Jesus is saying, my father is the expert vine dresser. And when it comes to a vineyard, the primary task of the farmer is pruning correctly. So I found this graphic that illustrates this. You can see this vine and all the growth that's on there. You can see the label. There's the branches that were from last year. That need to from two years ago rather that need to be removed. And then there's all those other branches that grew over the last year. All of that needs to get cut off. In fact, a good vine dresser usually culls, prunes out 70 to 90% of the growth on the vine. And he does this in order that there will be the most fruit possible. And so it's a delicate balance. If you cut off too much, it's not going to be as fruitful as it could be. But if you leave too much on there, then the fruit that's produced is not going to have enough nutrients to fully ripen into the, the grapes that you're looking for. So the vine dresser needs real skill in doing this. And then the passage describes two types of branches. The first one I'm calling campfire fuel because of the nature of a vine, you know what a vine looks like, right? In fact, in Ezekiel 15, it says a vine isn't even good to turn into a peg to put in the wall to hang something on. A vine, because of the nature of the wood itself and because of the shape, isn't used to make anything. If it's not bearing fruit, the only value is that you throw it on the fire. You let it dry out and you burn it. That's the only value to that wood. Now, I I warned you at the outset, especially if you're here investigating the Christian faith, um, that this is a a hard teaching. I agree with C.S. Lewis who said that the doctrine of hell is the worst part of Christianity. And many people trying to make a a distinction. You know, you've got the angry, judgmental God of the Old Testament, and then you've got the gentle, kind, loving Jesus who just welcomes everybody in the New Testament. And there's two problems with that. Number one, in John 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And as we looked at last week in John 14, he told Philip, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he's saying on one level, we're one and the same. You can't draw this dichotomy between us. And the other thing we really need to wrestle with is that Jesus talked about judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. He was serious about what it means to follow God and to walk in obedience. Um, but I think we often see it in the wrong light. I, I like how Peter speaks of it in Second Peter. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Now listen to this. Is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, Peter's saying, people are, are saying, where's Jesus? How come he hasn't come back? Peter's saying, it's not that he's slow. It's that he's longing for people to come to repentance. Um, now, again, if you're here investigating the Christian faith, we often react to these kinds of absolute truths, and, and we see it as kind of us and them, and, and we only hear it as rejection. But I would want to say two things to you. Number one, and we talked about this some last week. You can, you can uh, if you wanted to, if you weren't here and you wanted to revisit that sermon, I talk more expansively than I can today. The one who, who designed everything. Can we trust that he knows what's best? That he actually can speak authoritatively into our lives. Um, and there's another piece that as we often see rejection, what we need to reckon with is the invitation that's coming to us. In other words, don't think about, I'm sure many of you have heard the argument, Well, what about the person on the, on the island, you know, that tropical island that no missionary ever goes to? You're here today, what about you? That's the question. What are you gonna do with what Jesus reveals about himself? Um, Because at the same time, he is saying, come to me in welcome. The passage goes on, I should have said, leave leave the Bible open, because we'll refer to some of the verses later. Verse 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus knows what's coming. This is at the Last Supper. He knows what's coming later that night and the next day. He's going to be the one who lays down his life, who dies for the sins of the people. He's saying, I love you. I gave my life for you. Um, I've given all that I can. So joy is what's being offered, as you see in this passage. The branches are cut off because they're not abiding, but the invitation to abide is there for everyone. Jesus did talk about a narrow way, that there is a narrow path to follow, but all are invited to be on that path. Um, You know, there's a challenge. I'm going to talk a little bit later about how verse uh, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. There's a little bit of a challenge when you read scripture because you see very clearly that idea of choosing. What, what theologians call the doctrine of election. At the same time, you see all over the place, personal responsibility. What will you choose? Will you follow? I think this is a helpful illustration. If it works for you, great. If not, we can, we can talk more maybe after the service. But uh, Jen's old pastor, Joe Foch, used to put it like this, from Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia, that on the front, the front of the door, it says, whosoever will come... And when you get inside the door and look back, it says, known from the foundation of the world, that somehow God holds both of these things together. But what I want you to hear is the invitation to life that this passage offers. Okay, and then the final branch, the second branch here, is one that's bearing fruit. The life of the vine is flowing into this branch, and the branch is bearing fruit, which is another way of saying The vine is reproducing itself in this branch. That's what fruit does, right? You can plant it and you get another vine. The vine is seeking to reproduce itself in the fruiting branch. So the fruitful branch is abiding to bear fruit. The first thing we need to look at in this is that fruitlessness is a result of not abiding. So what prevents us from not abiding? I mentioned that this this theme runs through the Old Testament in a number of different places. Uh, Here's one from Hosea 10 that, that talks about this. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So what's the context? The altars are not altars to God. Hosea is saying, hey, you started getting blessed and prospering in all kinds of ways, and you started worshiping false gods. In the midst of your prosperity, other things lay hold of your heart and took you away from me. I think this is incredibly important for us as Western Christians. A warning of Scripture. Scripture is very clear. You know, lots of people like to quote James that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not saying it's the root of evil, but it's saying you need to be careful what wealth and prosperity can do to your heart. You need to be careful. So I was, as I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking of Jesus' parable of the soils. And so I'll just throw these up from Mark 4 and Luke 8. I'm not going to read through through the whole text. But I just want to point out a couple of the things that it warns about. The parable of the soils, if you're not familiar Jesus said a sower went out, and he sowed seed in different soils. And the seed is the word of God, and it takes root in different ways. Um, But in three situations, it fails. And in this one, weeds have sprung up. And so he tells us what they are. The deceitfulness of riches. Desire for other things that creep in. that the cares of this life, the riches and pleasures, choke it and make it unfruitful. So, some of you might be battling this. It's pigweed taking over a Christmas tree farm. I could have actually taken a picture of my garden right now, (laughs) at my peppers being strangled out by weeds, but that's too embarrassing. (laughs) Weeds take over and they choke. And Jesus is warning, I realize I'm mixing agricultural metaphors a bit here, but he's warning that other things will distract you from devotion to him. They squeeze out our love for him. So, the passage tells us that life withers, it says in verse 6, apart from him, and in verse 11, in him. He wants your joy to be full. So I want to ask you, what are things that have the potential, what are things that could be a danger to you that could choke life and make it unfruitful? Things that can be distracting for you. You'll have noticed uh, in in what I read, and particularly if you look at verse 12, beyond what I read, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, that the, the fruit of abiding that God is looking for is relational. I'll talk about this more in a moment, but it's relational. It's relationship with him and relationship with other people. So one place I would challenge you to look at what can be getting in the way is what is causing conflict in your life with other people? What are the things that come between you and those closest to you? Those are areas, likely, where pruning would be prudent. So what are things that are causing conflict in your life for you? Now, I think it's important to see in this passage, that if you are not abiding, that you can accomplish nothing." It says, "Apart from me, in verse five, "Apart from me, you can do nothing." In other words, it doesn't mean if you're not abiding in Jesus, you know you're at a little bit of a disadvantage. going to be a little bit of a handicap of what you can accomplish. It's saying, and actually, later and again, further down in this passage, he's saying that he wants us to have fruit that abides in verse 16. The only fruit that abides is going to come from relationship with him and resting in him. That's the only way that you're going to bear fruit. So a couple images came to mind. Number one is this old-fashioned diver, right, with the air hose that goes up before scuba gear. If that air hose gets kinked, this guy is in trouble really quickly. He needs a constant flow of oxygen to stay alive. The other one is electricity. If you students have the best gaming desktop ever, and it's not plugged in, It's going to be worthless. You need a power source for that. And I think both of these pictures are helpful to hold together because this passage is saying that he is both a source of life for us, a vital source of life, and a source of strength and power with the vine, the branch connected to the vine. So abiding, the passage tells us, is a result of love. There is this invitation in verse 9 abide in my love. This might be hard for us to think about. It's not language you use. Will you make the love of Jesus the home that you live in? Will you see Jesus' love as your home? That's the invitation of this passage. So one kind of obvious example would be be a, a baby in the womb. It's like this, carried along, everything provided for you. Perfectly cared for, protected, and loved. And it's really important to realize that Jesus tells us first that he loves us and invites us to abide in his love. Before that, in verse 10, he's saying, keep my commandments. What is he saying? Your obedience, your following of him, your keeping his commands is flowing from the declaration of his love for you. He's saying, grab hold of what is already yours. This love has already been given to you. Abide in it. You can't earn more than what you already have. But it is possible to not enjoy what you already have. I already mentioned this verse, but but verse 13, again, I I would point at you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is talking about this radical, self-giving, sacrificial love. Um, At the cross, Jesus gave us his all. He had nothing left to give. He gave everything for you. You can't find a love that is greater than that. You cannot find anyone who will love you more. This is what true love really looks like. And it's important that you understand love because the passage tells us that our maximum fruitfulness only comes from pruning. So again, I wanted to flash this back up so you'd realize there's a lot of cutting that needs to take place. And the reason why it's so important that you know he loves you is because pruning hurts. Pruning hurts. The majority of this branch needs to get cut back. The only way that that pruning is effective is if you cut back to what is live, to living wood. That means when you get pruned, you will bleed like this vine. And you need to know that he loves you. Because if you don't hold on to the the reality of his love, the promise of his love and commitment to you, you are going to be prone to see pruning as punishment instead of an act of love for you. I love this quote from Samuel Rutherford. He was a 17th century uh, Scots theologian, one of the Westminster divines. He's one of my mentors from across the centuries. Uh, I would commend him to you, although it can be hard to hang with the old English sometimes. Uh, Most of the books do have a glossary of archaic Scotisms in the back, which is very helpful. But anyway, simple quote here Why should I start at the plow of my Lord that maketh deep furrows on my soul? I know that he is no idle husbandman, he purposeth a crop. I love that imagery running a plow up your back. It's excruciating. He does it with intentionality. His intention is to bring a fruitful crop from your life. Now, what does pruning look like? Often, it is the removal or withholding Of things that are actually good. It's not just getting rid of bad things in your life. Often there's good things that God takes away, or there's a good thing you're really longing for, and he's saying, no, I'm sorry, that is not for you, at least not at this time. Things that we really want, things that we think we need, that are going to give us life, and he's holding them back. So, What might that be? It could be advancement in your career, that position you were really hoping for, that promotion. It could be students making the varsity team or being allowed to play that position that you really want to play. It could be just acknowledging, receiving an award, getting some kind of acknowledgement for work that you've done. It may be that longing for a romantic relationship when there is nothing there right now. There's all kinds of things that our hearts long for. And it is critical when God is withholding things that you would know this, that he'll never withhold something from you that would be critical for you to have or take something away from you that would be necessary for you to keep that he is always looking to prune you for your good, to make you more fruitful. And his promise is, he is going to fill in the gaps. He's going to fill in the absence of whatever that thing is. But a question before us is, does the pruning in your life, is it right now making you more fruitful? Think about it like this. When, when a a grapevine is pruned, you've got the the vine growing up and the branch coming off. The extraneous bits, the parts furthest away from the vine are what are cut off. What's happening there? It's, It's bringing the branch in close, bringing it closer to the vine, taking away the parts that are further away. But here's the reality. In the pruning... And in the pain of the pruning, are you seeking him or are you going somewhere else? Because one of the dangers of pruning is we can just get angry at what's going on. We can turn against him instead of turning towards him. Um, Instead of seeking him in the pain like we sang about in that one song and finding life in him, we can rail against him. And it's usually one or the other. There's usually not a lot of middle ground here, drawing near or turning away. I want to show you an example of how this works from the life of the Apostle Paul. He says this in 2 Corinthians 1, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What is he saying? I I was so utterly burdened beyond my strength. Death looked like a better option compared to what we were going through. It was so incredibly difficult. But I went through that to learn that I can't rely on myself. I had to learn John 15. I had to learn that apart from him, I can do nothing. And He goes on and says a lot more about that in 2 Corinthians 12. We can't go there, but I want to give you a little picture of how this works because earlier in chapter 1, he said this, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction.'" so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which which we ourselves are comforted by God. How did he discover that God is the God of all comfort? By going through something excruciating. That's how he learned this truth. And then you see the reality of, of, of what Jesus is talking about in John 15. We can then comfort other people because of what we have learned and received from him. It's bearing fruit. It's replicating who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. So we abide, the passage tells us, through obedience. What does the abiding look like? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he says in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. The goal is that we would respond to who Jesus is with love for him and love for other people, that it would be vertical and horizontal. Just as in Jesus' relationship, there's a mutuality of love and care that he has with the Father. He wants our obedience to flow from a knowledge of his love for us so that it's not this painful duty. It's a joy and a delight that comes from knowing him. I love how John puts this in 1 John 2. It says, and by this, we know that we we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, what is he saying? When you truly know him, you will obey when you truly know him. Are there gaps in your obedience right now? He's saying it's because you don't really know me. If you knew me, it would be a delight. Um, If you are struggling to obey him in some area of your life, it means you don't know him well enough yet. When you see that there's safety under his wing, like the branch getting brought in closer to the vine, you want to stay there. So, on one level, with abiding, I I want you to think about it like this. It's a little bit like marriage. In marriage, you have a legal contract that forms a relationship. You are bound to this other person. God's choosing of you, God's showing his love to you, is inviting you into that legal contract. But just like marriage, a couple can decide whether they want to have a depth of intimacy or not. Having a legal contract does not guarantee intimacy. Are you praying together? Are you talking with each other? Do you know your your histories? Do you know the disappointments? Do you know the dreams that you have? Do you know what really matters to me? All these things are what makes for a good marriage. In the absence of a growing and deepening intimacy, marriage at best can be cold. And in most cases, it becomes conflict because you've got two different people with two different desires that, be, that grow to be at war with one another. It loses its joy. A relationship with Jesus is like that. Is it going deeper? Another picture I'd want to give you is a foundation. Um, Jesus' calling... Of us is like a foundation that's laid but you can see in the background there's a whole superstructure that's supposed to go on top of this concrete slab. The abiding in him is the growing and building of this in him above it. Otherwise you're just wrapped up in a blanket sleeping on a slab you're still out in the elements. He's inviting you to go deeper in relationship but for all of us that is a choice. If we're going to abide, if we're going to walk with him, if we're going to go to him as the source of life instead of going to other places. And the result of abiding to bear fruit is that there would be much fruit and full joy. Our passage tells us, I already mentioned that that the fruit in view is fulfilling the two great commands, to love God and to love other people. And I think this is important to realize Because I think a lot of times we see obedience as a list of restrictions. Like, I want to go in all these different directions, and the Lord keeps saying, no, you can't do this, that, and the other thing. Instead of realizing that obedience is becoming the man or the woman that he created you to be. One who, like the fruit coming out of the vine, looks like the vine. That the life of the vine is being replicated in you. That's what obedience looks like. That's what he's really longing for. And think about this. Our passage is saying, in verse 8, the Father is glorified when you do this. How many of you have gone out in nature and just been astounded by the majesty of God, right? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. You've just been overwhelmed by his majesty. It's like, how can you add anything to his glory? He's saying, you know what? You can obey That's actually going to add to my glory. What an amazing thing. This is an incredible invitation that is being put before us. A couple other points that I want you to think about with fruit bearing. Fruit always comes from fresh growth. I showed you that, that picture, right? A lot needs to get cut off. Well, you know what happens with canes that are two years old or older? Just leaves. No fruit ever. You've got to get cut, but it also needs to be fresh growth. Um, Why why am I saying this? Don't rely on past experiences of grace. Don't rely and look back on, well, you know, I really loved this difficult person like five years ago. (laughs) Praise the Lord. There's probably other difficult people in your life for you to love right now. He wants fresh growth in you, fresh fruit-bearing. One other thought for you with with fruit-bearing. Abiding branches are not drained by fruit-bearing. They are conduits for life that is flowing from the vine to make the fruit. He wants power and life flowing into you in order for you to bear fruit in loving other people. The branch isn't exhausted in forming grapes if it is a channel for the life and power of the vine. Uh, and so I do want to ask you are, you, are you wiped out by serving other people? Serving other people is hard. I mean, you don't have to read very far in the Gospels before you get that it was hard for Jesus, okay? So I'm not saying it's easy. But he knew where to go for life, right? What do you see? While it was still dark, he went up to the mountain all by himself to spend time with his father. Before I need another day with these people, I really need to get recharged, But that's what enabled him to live a life of love without getting depleted. And that's what he invites you to, abide. And when we are abiding, there's, there's transformed desires. I can't, I can't de- um, develop this too far, but I wanted to highlight it just because it's in the te- text. In verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And he goes on and says a similar thing in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. As Bob Dylan said, God is not an errand boy to satisfy our wandering desires. When he was more orthodox than he is at the moment. These, these verses are not inviting you, hey, use God like a vending machine and just get whatever you want. It's saying, when you are abiding, you will learn who I am, your hearts and your desires will be transformed. They will be increasingly brought in line with the heart of Jesus and his will for this world. I love how, how it says it in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord... And he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in him. So, finally, he's describing this life of joy. Life of joy is, is that the vine is not feeding itself. The, lo- the vine is feeding the branches. And so we've already talked about Jesus' sacrificial life, laying his life down for others going to the cross for us, atoning for sin on our behalf. But it's saying joy, which you, most of you would know, is from Gal- in Galatians 5, is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's evidence of the Spirit in you if you have joy. It says it's only going to exist through a union with Him. Now, I know all of you have had an experience with overindulgence. I had some friends that worked down um, off of Penn's campus and there was the, the best Indian, you know, best of Philadelphia Indian buffet where we used to meet for lunch. This is when my office was in Manioc. And I would drive back to Manioc probably almost 100% of the time going, oh, why? I would be on my way to West Philly saying I'm not going to do it again. And then I would drive back with the seat back, oh. We all know what overindulgence is like. And the summer is a challenging time because, you know, we all are going on vacation, most of us, and vacation just kind of primes the pump to be me-centered. I mean, after all, I'm away and everything's supposed to go my way, and can I get a hallelujah and amen for everybody who has little kids? Because it doesn't work. <laughs> we know that overindulgence doesn't satisfy. What, what is satisfying? A life focused on me goes sideways. It hurts me and it hurts other people. And this is true whether it is overeating or binge-watching TV or sleeping half the day away, whatever it might be. Conversely, he's saying, if you live for self, you're like that withered branch that needs to get cut off and thrown away. But if you are living for other people... You are invited to have a life that brings glory to the creator of the universe. He's saying, if you're not bearing fruit, you're actually not fulfilling the purpose for which you've been placed on earth. This is why you're here. And this is where you're going to find joy. Let Let me leave it with this. The more you know Jesus, the more you will love him. The more you love him, the more you're going to obey him. The more you obey him, the more you're going to abide in him. And the more that you abide in him, the more that you are going to bear fruit. The more that you're going to bear fruit, the more you're going to find that this is where the essence of life is actually found. Partnering with him to bring blessing and extend his kingdom in this world, wherever he's called you to be, that is where you are going to find life. Will you submit to the pruning that he's doing? Will you turn to him and embrace him in it? Knowing that when you do so, he's going to give you life and joy to the full. Let's pray. Lord, it is so hard. Uh, Many of us, I think of the, the song we sang about looking up at the cross. And this life that you've called us on, that you were honest with us, Jesus. You told us that following you, being your disciple, meant carrying a cross. But for many of us, we really had no idea how hard it was going to be. We maybe didn't think you really meant it, that we were going to have to die. But we thank you for the hope of the gospel, that there is resurrection life on the other side of any death you call us to. Would you give us eyes of faith to see that? Would you fill us afresh with your spirit that you would give us hope And spur us on to follow and obey. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.